uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the topic of generosity from 2 Corinthians 8 and uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 15 uh, in 8 and verses 6 through 11 in chapter 9. It's, it's found in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible, and, but I encourage you to open it up in, in, your, uh, in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible and look. It'll also be on the screen as well. And let's read it together. Chapters 8, verses 1 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches uh, of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty become rich. And in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your needs, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever lacked little had no lack. Or who gathered little had no lack. And then verse, verses six through 11 from chapter nine, the apostle Paul writes, this point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever thought about why, and, and right now I want in, in your mind um, to be thinking of the most generous people you know, like the most generous people you know. And so who is coming to your mind? The most generous people you know. And for me, to be honest, it's, it's a list of family, but also friends here in this church. The most generous people that I know, and, and almost 
every instance of generosity, the person that I have deemed in my heart and mind, the people that are coming into my mind right now, are also the most joyous and happy people I know. Have you noticed that? The most generous people tend to be also the happiest, most joyful people that we know. Why is that? And today we're talking about how the gospel is literally God's extreme and extravagant generosity towards us. And therefore, Paul is saying, it only makes sense for Jesus' children to also be extravagantly generous towards other people. It just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for God's children to not be generous towards one another, towards the poor, towards what God is doing in the world. It just doesn't add up for Paul, and it shouldn't add up for us as well. And this is so true. I mean, one of the greatest things about preaching and one of the most difficult things is, like, I have to live with the topic and the text all week long, and I've been thinking about this, like, about generosity, and and am I a generous person and so forth, and am I living my life in light of the gospel in such a generous way? And as I really think about it, in all honesty, there are parts of my life that are quite generous, but there are other parts where I still need to be challenged a great deal to become even more generous. And we're going to be talking about all forms of generosity today. And and generally, you know, when I preach, especially from 2 Corinthians 9, we get into detail about like money mainly and that kind of thing. But today, I don't want to talk just about money. I want to talk about generosity in general. Generosity mainly with the spirit of your heart, because that's where it begins. We know that everything flows out of our heart, right? That that's where it begins. And if we're not generous from our heart and have an actual spirit of generosity, you can give, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, everything you have to the poor and yet have nothing if you have not what? Do you remember from 1 Corinthians 13? Love. So the main thing we're after this morning is not just the work of generosity, but the heart of generosity, because out of the heart, if you truly have the spirit of generosity in your heart, then the works of generosity will just flow. Some forms of generosity come easy for me, and others become more difficult. To be honest, at this stage in my life right now, one of the things that's more difficult for me is being generous with my time. It feels like there's a lack thereof at times. And, and uh, somebody has explained to me that people are kind of like Lego pieces, <laughs> right? And, uh, well, you're like, no, not really. <laughs> like little pieces of plastic with all these knobs on them. Like a little Lego piece has all these connectors to it. And some people, by God's design and temperament, have like maybe you're a six-person connector. Like you, you have on your little Lego piece six ways to connect because maybe you're super introverted and, and once you, you feel full relationally after six connected pieces. But like th- others of us have a larger panel or board of your little connecting, I'm not explaining this very well, a uh, Lego piece, you know, but maybe you're, you're one of those like thinner pieces that have a, a lot of connecting points. points. I think that's me. I, I think I have lots of room to connect, but the reality is whether you're six or a hundred or, or like whatever as a Lego piece, once you feel full, you feel full. And I have to keep pushing myself to say, even though relationally I am so full as a pastor and as a father and as a husband and as a guy who's involved in my school the, where my kids go, that kind of thing, at times I feel full, but it's not okay just to say, I don't want to be generous with my time or hospitality or my heart towards people anymore, right? I have to remain a generous person in light of the gospel. Amen? Generosity. 
It goes way beyond just money. It's the spirit of it all. Researchers at the University of Notre Dame are studying scientifically generosity. I don't know how exactly you do that, but they are. And they found some common traits about generous people. And the one commonality they found that is very powerful is that the generous person has a thankful heart because they see themselves as the recipient of luck. That's the way they described it in the article, of luck. We, we would say it's not luck, it's God's loving grace towards us, right? It's not luck, it's his sovereign care over us. Like, so I have been blessed with such generosity from God, not only in the gospel, but the fact that I was born to my parents when I was born to them, that I was born in the United States, that I was born uh, where I was born at the time I was born, the education I was gifted, did not have to earn the opportunities, the mentors I've had, the, the wife that God brought into my life. God has been so gracious to me. And you could say, yes, God, but you've worked hard and so forth. And I have worked hard with what God has given me. But look what God has given me. And, and then what they're saying is the generous person looks around and realizes not everyone has been so fortunate with the same opportunities, the same giftedness. And the generous person in turn said, I've been given so much. Not everyone has been given as much as I have. Therefore, I should, I should be generous. And how much more so the person who's been impacted by the gospel of Jesus and our main point today is this. The gospel is God's extravagant generosity to us. And so the gospel should create an extravagant generosity in us. It's God's extravagant generosity to us and therefore should create in us, in us, an extravagant generosity. And I use that word extravagant because how else could you describe God's generosity to us? There are synonyms, but you can't just say generosity. I, I just, as I'm making this main point this week, I mean, you can't call it generosity. It's extravagant grace. It's extravagant generosity. And the three points that I want us to see today is this. Generous, the gospel is the measure, the gospel is our motive, and then there are obstacles to generosity. First, the gospel is our measure. During this time in history, um, Jerusalem, so Israel in general, but Jerusalem specifically was going through a very difficult time with a drought and then a famine. And so where the early church started, right in Jerusalem, the very first century, so as you read in Acts 2 and so forth about the early church, it is that group of people that we read about in Acts 2 that are literally experiencing starvation and difficulty. And if you've ever seen an example of a generous church, it's that church in Acts 2 in Jerusalem sharing all of the needs with one another as they see fit and selling their possessions and giving to one another. If there's anybody poor, they helped one another and that kind of thing. Now they're struggling. And so as Paul is traveling throughout the Roman Empire to plant new churches, he's also taking a collection for the Christians who are in Jerusalem and who are suffering so much. Now Titus has reported, Titus is Paul's right-hand man and is currently in Corinth with the Corinthians and he's reporting back to Paul the sad news that even though the Corinthians had promised that they would give a large donation towards this collection for the Corinthians, or excuse me, the Macedonian church, uh, nope, <laughs> the Jerusalem church, they had not followed through on it yet. Too many Onians and Indians and all that, sorry. <clears throat> 
And so in chapters 8 and 9, Paul gets intense, and he teaches them how the gospel is our measure and our motive and should be calling us to lives of generosity, and he's bold in doing so. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God, and he calls it the grace of God towards this really impoverished church in Macedonia. This church, New Valley, has been blessed to, to build a relationship with some Christians in Macedonia. In fact, some of you, a very small group, went over to Macedonia to be with them, to help with their collection of things for poor people in Macedonia and to travel around Macedonia giving them out. It's still an impoverished company, uh, country. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that God gave the Macedonians for in a severe test of affliction, Listen to the paradox of this. They were in a severe test of affliction, and yet their abundance of joy, happiest people on earth, and their extreme poverty, doesn't seem to make sense, have overflowed in what? A wealth of generosity. An enormous test of, a test of affliction and a really impoverished group of people, you don't expect the next sentence to say, overflowed with this incredibly joyful generosity. You just don't expect that, but that's what you get with this Macedonian church. They're poor, and yet they're so, so generous. Paul said that the Macedonians are in this test of affliction, and they passed the test and proved in their extreme poverty just how beautiful their faith is and how generous they are. Now imagine you starting a, a GoFundMe page for the church in Jerusalem. And you're like, I have a heart for this. I'm concerned about what's happening there. And, you know, like, like right now, I have a growing concern about what's happening in Indonesia and the people there and the Christians that are there and the tsunami. And we have uh, Brother Chris Petrasahan who started a mission. He's, he is from Indonesia, and he started a mission to the Indonesian people. And, and so we're going to be talking to you all about how maybe we can raise some money for Indonesia. But the point is this. Imagine you're going to start a GoFundMe page for Jerusalem and you're putting together your list and you know, you're, you're inputting your, your data and your email addresses of who you're going to send. Hey, would you please give towards this? I am going to think of my wealthy friends. I'm going to think of the people that have means. I am not thinking of the Macedonian church. And I probably wouldn't include them in the email. Instead, I would think, and as soon as I'm done with this, this benefit for the uh, Jerusalem church, let's start raising money for the Macedonians because I think they're just as bad off as the church in Jerusalem. But he doesn't include them in his GoFundMe ask, and they write and beg him. They literally beg him, will you please <laughs> let us partake in this offering so that we can help our brothers and sisters who are in need. Yeah, but you're poor. We don't care. You're impoverished. It doesn't matter. We want to take part. Even if it's 10 bucks, we want to be involved in this because we love our brothers and sisters. And meanwhile, though, the church in Corinth is rich. As I've talked about Corinth over the years, I've, I've described it as the Vegas of the Roman Empire. Like, it is, it is wealthy. It is a, it's a place where people go. It's a port city. It is, it's, uh, paganism is everywhere. We talked about this last week, and literally pagan idolatry, and it's this cultural city. They've got means. They have an abundance, Paul says, and yet they're not following through on what they, they promised that they would do. When faced with this extreme test of their character and faith, the Macedonians had an abundance of joy that led to a wealth of generosity 
and it, he says they gave beyond their means. I, I don't even know how you do that. You have means. How do you give beyond that? But Paul is saying they sacrificed. And meanwhile, the Macedonians were tested through their poverty and the Corinthians were tested through their abundance. And the Corinthians are not passing the test yet. The poor people passed, but those with an abundance are having trouble following through. And the sad reality, that is often what happens. In a book called Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give More, there are these three sociologists that did this research and and statistics and, and giving habits of American Christians. And they found that as our income increases as American Christians, our generosity towards the poor, towards what God is doing in the world, decreases. Let me say that again. As income increases among American Christians, generosity towards the needy, towards the church, towards what God is doing in the world, decreases. That there's a strong indicator that the more you have, the less generous you tend to be. And nearly every, state, uh, every, every statistic and every data that's ever been taken on giving <clears throat> finds that to be true, not just among Christians. That often the more we have, the less we give. How can, that, how can that be that poor people are often the most generous people among us? Why is that? Because maybe it's because they know what it is to be without. And when God supplies their need, they want to be a part of supplying the need for others. Life is a test. And it, he says this in 2 Corinthians 8. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and our love for you. So they were this gifted group of people. They were, they were bright, they were educated, they were wealthy. They had all these gifts, and they talked about those gifts in 1 Corinthians, if you remember. And, and they were arguing about the gift of tongues and all these different things. And, and Paul says, look, you have all this giftedness, but see that you also excel in this act of grace. Grace. I say this not as a command, but to what? To prove by the eagerness of others that you, your love is also genuine. And this is not to shame us, this is not to make us feel bad, but to say, look, our lives serve as a test of whether the, the gospel is impacting our life and generosity is one of those fruits that should be born out of the heart that is being, that is being changed by the gospel. It serves as, as proof, Paul says, as a test. Generous, though, the gospel is our motive. Next, the gospel is our motive. In, in chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul so beautifully describes the gospel in terms of of generosity. For you know the grace of Jesus that though he was rich, was Jesus rich (laughs) prior to coming to earth in the incarnation? I mean, that's almost a silly phrase to describe Jesus. Was Jesus rich? Jesus was rich. (laughs) And yet, for your sake, he became poor. On earth was Jesus poor. At first, he was just a common, a common man, an average man, a, a hardworking blue-collar man, a, a carpenter, along with Joseph. But then he chose, right, not to pursue riches. He was God. He had the power of God. He was the full representation of God on earth. He could do whatever he wanted. 
If he wanted a mansion, a, a castle, whatever, he could have created it instantly and had it. Jesus was rich, yet but for our sake, he became poor. And, and Paul is not just talking literally either. He's talking spiritually that Jesus was rich in righteousness, in holiness, in God's character and power. And yet he emptied himself of all things and, and died a death on a cross for our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, it was literally the most incredible act of grace because he who was most wealthy in the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, lowly humbled himself and climbed upon a cross to die so that we might be forgiven and so that we might receive his riches. And, and the reason why Paul is, is so intense about saying, look, it doesn't make sense for the people of God to lack generosity because look at the generosity of God towards us in Jesus. The gospel is so beautiful, friends. It is not simply that you're forgiven. And that's almost always how we describe the gospel. You're forgiven. And that is true. Of course it's true. You're forgiven. But that's only half of the gospel. <laughs> The gospel is not simply that you're forgiven, that Jesus died the death you deserve, but also that he gives us the gift of what he deserves. You not only, not only did Jesus get what you deserved, this is the crazy thing about the gospel. In the gospel, you get what Jesus deserves. How does that make sense? <laughs> He got what I deserved, and I'm just going to be really honest with you. Here's what he deserved when he got what I deserved. He got death. Paul says the wages of sin are death. The fact is, today, I still deserve death. You say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You're a nice person. You work hard. Yeah, but I'm telling you, I know my heart. There's enough selfishness. There's enough sin, pride, arrogance. I still deserve death. And so today I can stand, I deserve death, and yet I have not received death. What have I received? In the gospel of Jesus, I have received life, not only life and forgiveness. He's not only forgiven me my sin and saying, go your merry way. He's saying, you get what I deserve. So Jesus is rich, y'all. <laughs> Jesus is rich. And he who was rich became poor so that I might become rich. Guess what? I'm rich now. And so are you. Whatever you have in this life, that's not what we're talking about. You have the righteousness of Christ and you have the hope of an eternal coming kingdom where all things will be made new. You're rich. And he did it for your sake. And he's calling us now, and this is why it just doesn't make sense, but this has to be our motive. Our motive has to be the gospel that he who was rich became poor so that we have become rich in righteousness and eternal life and the coming kingdom, and so we get to give our lives away in generosity and say, I must, I must have this motive of love flowing through me. I don't always feel it. Do you? I don't. But there's this challenge that Paul's giving us today, and he doesn't pull the punches with the Corinthians, and so we should not pull the punches. It just doesn't make sense for us not to live lives of generosity in light of his amazing generosity towards us in Jesus. But what a motive to change. 
not guilt, not shame, not you better get this right or you're going to lose your, your salvation. No, it's saying, look at, look at what Jesus has done for you. Are you reflecting on the gospel and of what he has done? Because of all other people in the world, we are now the sons and daughters of God. And so how generous should we be? But there are obstacles, and Paul mentions them. There are these obstacles. Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And one of the obstacles that I think he's pointing out here is the fear of loss. And we're not gonna be able to get to all the obstacles. There are so many. What, you know, like what keeps us from being generous? Like the reality is this, as the sons and daughters of God who, who are now spiritually rich because of the impoverishment of the son, uh, why are we not then more generous? And there's a ton of reasons, but we've gotta be thinking about them and praying about them. One of them, let's just be honest, is the fear of loss. If you sow sparingly, fear of loss. If you, spo- if you sow a large amount of seed, you're not fearing loss, and you're, you're kind of going for it in faith. That's what Paul is saying. He who sows sparingly will also, agricultural metaphor, reap what? Sparingly. You're, you're not going to have a big crop if you're, if you're throwing seed out in a sparing way. Farming back then was not easy, but pretty simple, okay? You had land, you didn't have plows and other implements to break up the ground, and so you had rocky soil. Jesus talks about this in the parables, right? You got rocky soil and good soil and medium soil and dry soil and so forth. So you would take your seed and you would just throw it around, like, and you would then be dependent. You don't have irrigation. You don't have, right? You're waiting for the rain to, to come and the sun to shine and that this might come forward. It would be scary, And so you have a certain amount of seed to sow, right? And if you sow all of it, and it falls on rocky soil, or the birds eat it, or the sun burns it up, or you don't get enough rain, it's gone, and you don't have a crop for next year. And so you would be tempted then to do what? Sow sparingly. I'm just going to throw a little bit out, because I need some for next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. And what Paul is saying is this, that fear of loss in a sense, is not a good way to live as the people of God, because why? He says, because God is able to supply your need. God is able to supply your need. It's the fear of what if. What if I give up my time? You're saying, like, and and Paul's not saying don't have boundaries, okay? He says, look, I'm not saying you should give so much that you have nothing. What I'm saying is, to you wealthy uh, Corinthians, the Macedonians had nothing and they gave so much, but like over here in Jerusalem, they're starving and you have an abundance. So I don't want you to starve. I just don't want them to either, okay? So out of your abundance, give. So he's not saying no boundaries, give everything away. What he's saying is this, let it be fair, he says. Give, give, and don't let the fear of loss keep you from doing so. The fear of loss. Is the fear of loss keeping you from being generous with your stuff? If I let my high school boys drive my car, (laughs) and I love that car, they might scratch it. I have a couple stripes down down the side of my, my sweet Honda Accord now because, like an idiot, I let them drive it. If I'm generous with my stuff, something might happen. Somebody might not return it. Somebody might steal it. 
Is the fear of loss keeping you from being generous with your stuff, your money, your time, your home? If I volunteer at the church, if I volunteer at that school, if I get involved with that mercy ministry, that justice ministry, and if I start doing this, like, maybe I won't have enough time for me. What if, what if, what if, what if? I read this great article this week on a blog called Fast Company. Uh, It's called The Generosity Paradox. By giving, we receive, but by taking, we lose. This is the name of the article, and it's not coming from a Christian perspective at all, but it is. The more generous people are, they write in this blog, the more happiness, health, and purpose in life they enjoy. Sounds like the gospel. Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. You know it's true. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own well-being. In letting go of some of what we have, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move towards greater flourishing. This is true. It's by design. It's how God's created us. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortune, we are formed in ways that make, think about this, is so true. We are formed in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortune. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. It is no coincidence that the word miser is etymologically related to the word miserable. We're cheating ourselves, what the gospel says, and even what research says, by not being people of generosity, we're actually not caring for ourselves well. Why? Because to be generous is to be joyful, to be happy, to be other sinners. This is where life is found. The good life, the good and beautiful life that the gospel has for us. First, the fear of loss. Second, another obstacle is the lack of faith. It's just lack of faith. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Paul says throughout 2 Corinthians 9, if you notice, there's so many promises. This just represents one from this section. God is able to make all grace abound to you. You kind of have to believe that <laughs> as a follower of Jesus. We are not into prosperity theology here at all. So if you're, if you're hearing any of that, like, oh, he's saying that if I give to the church or I give to, some, to the poor, that I'm gonna be rich. Not saying that. In fact, you might be impoverished your whole life. The, the, <laughs> the founder of our religion said, take up your cross and follow me, meaning come die with me. He didn't say, we're gonna get rich in this life, y'all. Sorry, I keep saying. Like, so he did not promise that, did not promise that. There is not a promise of prosperity in this life. There is a promise of enormous prosperity in the next life. Okay? So we're not saying that. But do we believe that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work? Will God provide the food I need? Will God provide the clothing I need? Will God provide what I need? Maybe not what I want, but what I need. Jesus says so in the parables. Jesus says so and Paul says so. And the problem with fear and faith is that they are competing for the same space in our heart. And that's the problem. So fear, I'm anxious, I'm worried, what if I give, what if I do this? You know, it'll be too much, it'll be, maybe I'll lose something, maybe I won't have enough for the future, etc., etc., etc. That fear lives in the same place that where faith needs to be living, which is in my heart, in my mind, in my very being. And so we have to battle fear with faith. I, 
I know what that is. We fight anxiety with faith. God is able. God is able. God is able. As a parent now of a 17-year-old, uh, an 18-year-old, and a 20-year-old, I can't tell you, like, this isn't about generosity, but how much I have to believe that God is able. God is able. And I have to fight my anxiety about my boys and their present and their future and the decisions they might make or they have the decisions they won't make or what if they don't follow through on this. You know? And you live with this fear as a parent and I have to fight it constantly and say, but God is able, he's their good father, he's got them, it's not up to me only, even though I'm a control freak, I can't control this, right? That's just about them parenting adult children, yikes. But then there's the whole thing of like generosity it's the same thing because fear and faith they live in the same place in our life they're competing for the same space who's winning who's winning is it fear or is it faith and i agree with chris i don't think i would be able to make it in this battle fear over faith or faith over fear without a gospel community so another commercial for that i need people in my life too i'm packing the gospel Next is this, a lack of planning and practice. Just very practically, Paul says this in chapters 9 and 7. Each one must give as he has decided. And by the way, he means women too. Each one of you must give as you have decided in in your heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It takes planning to decide in your mind and heart. That's what he says. Each one of you must give as he's decided in his heart. And what he's saying is one of the reasons or obstacles to not being a generous person, honestly, is some practical details. If you have too much debt in your life, it's hard to be generous with your money. If, 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 if you have arranged your home in such a way that you don't want anyone in it, like you don't feel hospitable, like there's some practical details. You don't plan well. You don't ever get out a calendar, so you don't know when you have a night available to invite someone over for dinner or out to lunch or to make a meal. And so what Paul is saying is this. There is a point where if you decide to give in your heart, you've worked through the details. I know how much money I have. I know my obligations. I know what I have left over. Now I can give joyfully, because I know I have it to give. So as I teach my own boys about financial stewardship and knowing about budget and money and, and giving, there's a sense in which practical issues matter because you also fully, we need to be giving out of an abundance of our heart, but cheerfully also, because if you're not giving authentically and joyfully out of love, Paul says, it's nothing. You can give everything away, he says, and it's nothing if it's not coming out of love. Imagine a husband, and I've used this illustration many times, but knocks on the door. It's not Valentine's Day. It's not, you know, uh, <laughs> I was at Fry's yesterday, and there's this little girl that is just utterly, just utter consternation at this booth right by the checkout at Fry's. And she's looking at it and goes, it is not even November yet, and they have Valentine's Day candy out here. And I'm like, oh, amen, sister. Like, yeah. And I'm, she's like, just, oh, she's like, it's, it is not even Halloween yet, and they, have, and they have this stand of Valentine candy out. But it, it's not for Valentine's Day. It's some other holiday they've created, right? Uh, anybody know what it is? It's like Lover's Day or something. Anybody? Sweetest Day. Come on, you know, I already have, I have enough pressure about Valentine's Day, but okay, it's not Valentine's Day, it's not Sweetest Day, it's not your anniversary, but your husband knocks on the door, wives and, and, and or fiancés or whatever, and says, hey, and, and you open the door, and he's standing there with flowers. 
And you're like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? And he says to you, well, I was reading this book and this author says it's really smart to give your wife flowers every once in a while just randomly. So I was at Trader Joe's and they got those really cheap flowers. <laughs> and, you know, they're under 10 bucks, but they're, you know. And so I give these to you in obligation from what this author was saying. <laughs> Guys, that didn't work. You know, <laughs> you're, you're getting nowhere with that. If you have any motives or ideas behind that, it ain't working. Okay? Instead, take notes, men. So here's what you do. <laughs> you can still go to Trader Joe's. It, 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 those flowers are wonderful, right? And, and you can bring them and you knock and you say, what, what are you doing? It's not Valentine's Day. It's not Sweetest Day. It's not my birthday or anniversary. What are you doing? I saw these at Trader Joe's and because I love you so much, I just couldn't help myself. I love you. You're, thank you for all the sacrifices you make for our family. Flowers. Wives love a cheerful giver. Husbands love a cheerful giver. Children, your parents love cheerful givers. <laughs> it never happens, but they would love it, right? They would love it. So I was like, mom bought this. Here, take it. It's socks, whatever. Like, God loves a cheerful giver. Um, but this article by Fast Company that I just referenced, I want to read, they said this, to live generously, one must in due time really become a generous person, meaning authentically, from the heart, cheerfully. Just generosity must be authentic for it to actually matter and change your life, they're saying. But the fact does not mean that people must first somehow fully internalize and authentically personalize generosity before they can practice being generous at all. You tracking what they're saying? One of the best ways to become a truly, authentically joyful, generous person is simply to start behaving like one. C.S. Lewis said the exact same thing. It, love, we're all after love, we're all after true, authentic love, but if, you're, if you have to fake it until you make it for a while, Lewis says, that's not the words he uses, but he says do it because that will create more generosity and love in your heart. Right attitudes often do follow right actions. New beliefs and insights are frequently provoked by new behaviors, instigation of habits. So there's a challenge for those of us that love Jesus. Our main point, the gospel is God's extravagant generosity to us, and so, and so the gospel should be creating an extravagant generosity in us. The God, that's what the gospel does. And so as we close, I, I, want, I want to ask a question. I want you to, to hear the description of the Macedonian church. And I would like us just in our hearts to pray that the Lord would create those descriptors in us. And maybe, maybe we're helpless to even do that. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And to pray in this church and in your heart and your life that the Lord would create that that desire, that hunger, that spirit of generosity. And again, we're not just talking about money. Of course money, but way beyond that, with your very life, a spirit of generosity, a spirit of generosity. Paul says these kind of things, you know, about the Macedonian church. I want you to know about the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia. An abundance of grace. Let's pray for that an abundance of grace. Even though they're severely tested, they're 
incredibly impoverished. There's an abundance of joy. They have an overflowing and a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave not just according to their means, but beyond their means. They gave sacrificially. And not as I expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord first, because that's the key, and that's what we're doing right now. Lord, we're coming to you, asking for help, and then by the will of God to us. An abundance, overflowing with generosity. They were eager, they, they begged, they begged Paul, Lord, you know, Paul, would you help, would you let us give? Would you let us give? So, church, we're, we're an affluent church. We are. And the statistics would say bad things about us. But that doesn't have to be true of us. Let's pray for a spirit of generosity. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would bring that joyfully into our lives, that we would hunger and thirst to be a generous church. Are we growing in hospitality? Are we growing in opening up our homes to one another and sharing with one another and making sure that no one has need among us? Are we growing in our concern and care for the, the neighborhoods just, just to the south of us? We've moved into this new bu- building here and, and there is a very impoverished area just, just to the south of us right here. Church, do we care about that? Do we care about the needs in the body? Do we care about the needs in the world? Are we growing in hospitality and openness and spirit? Are we growing cynical as we drive around and we see people with signs? Are we just growing cynical as we see people asking for stuff or maybe even people, you know, organizations, that kind of thing? Are we just growing cynical? And the, the warning is this, don't, don't let your heart grow cold. The gospel is too powerful that. Paul presents the story of two churches, the Macedonians' gen- generosity. It didn't make sense in the world's eyes, does it? It doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. How could people so poor be so generous? That's one story, but the other story is the story of a church that is so wealthy and yet lacking in generosity, and that just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And so the story of our lives Is it making sense as a church and as individuals? Is it making sense in light of God's extravagant grace to us? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you and we pray earnestly for your help because the truth is most of us are caught up far more into our our pleasure and entertainment and the cares of our own cares beyond the the needs of others. We often care far more about where we'll go out to eat or or what what next experience we'll have versus the needs of others around us, Lord. And and while there's nothing wrong with a good vacation or enjoying art or, or that kind of thing, Father, would you help us to have compassion for the needs around us? Would our hearts not grow cold? And where they are cold, Lord, would you warm them? I confess, Father, that my heart can grow cold towards the needs of others, and I'm, I get tired, and I get, I get overcommitted, and in my busyness and exhaustion, at times, Lord, I don't care like I ought to. The, it just doesn't make sense in light of the gospel. And so, Father, for us and as a church, would you create in us a warmth, a growing spirit, an openness to say, Holy Spirit, bless us so that we may be a blessing to others. Give us the understanding of what to do, when to do, how to do it, to bless the needs in this city, the needs in this church, the needs around the world. 
we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.